This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Right now, let's check in on the United States because things have been, well, remarkably fascinating. And that's from the point of view of we Canadians who can sit back as observers. What about being in the United States right now? Where where could this go? We wondered last week, what if Donald Trump does not win and what if he refuses to leave? You can't make me. What then? Well, Dr. Alex Kena joins us. We spoke with Dr. Kena last week. Dr. Kena is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. Dr. Kena, great to have you back on the show. How are you? Great, Mike. How are you? Thanks for having me. Well, it, it's amazing to have your insight in this because we now have a situation where, in in a way, there has there's been a, a president-elect uh, named. Is is there a way to even put context on that? Are you calling <laughs> Joe Biden president-elect? Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair, fairly clear he's he's won the election. He's the president-elect. Um, but that, that brings up a good point, which is who actually determines when somebody is, in fact, elected president. And um, usually that that isn't really a question that is really interesting because that's done sort of behind the scenes um, when the Electoral College meets and the votes are officially cast, which occurs in December. Um, so usually it's it's a moment that we remember because we see it on TV and um, everyone just sort of agrees. But this year is the first time in my recollection that that some portion of the population disagrees. And it seems to be, at least from what, you know, what goes resoundingly around social media or resoundingly around interviews in streets, it seems to be that there's there's definitely a, a large portion of the population that seems to be all right let, let's let's fight this uh how do you go about fighting something like this that if you add up the numbers doesn't seem to be all that close i mean we're not talking gore versus bush 2000 here are we no that was a very different situation um the situation in 2000 was that bush who was eventually declared the president had a lead already in Florida. And, you know, that's a very different situation than Donald Trump finds himself now, where it's not just one state, it's potentially multiple states, maybe four states he would need to have overturned. And the writing is on the wall, and it's very clear that anyone who um, cares about evidence or objective truth or facts um, but the Trump world lives in its own media ecosystem, and there's all sorts of disinformation that's floating around, and it comes straight from the top, which is Trump himself. Dr. Alex Keena joining us, assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. So where does this go maybe in the next few days? Dr. Keena, what do you anticipate hearing in the next few days as all of these lawsuits continue to be filed and court challenges continue to be issued? Well, probably more of the same, which is denial um, in Trump world. Um, and the courts just 
very quickly and clearly dismissing all of these suits because what they're asking for is is unprecedented. I mean, I think they just he, I think they expect that the courts will just overturn democratic elections, but that's not how this works. Um, especially when the winner has almost 80 million votes when all the votes are being counted. So I, I don't know what they're hoping for, but I think, I think if you actually look at the numbers, a lot of this has to do with, uh, raising money and, and, um, hanging on to that core base of supporters that Trump has built his coalition on. And that's what this is all about. I mean, if you scroll on social media, even my social media feed, you see um, ads to to give money to the Trump campaign to help fight the election. And uh, really, I think that that says a lot about why why the president is refusing to concede. Man, and that really adds some perspective on this. But at the same time, his followers aren't ready to believe that, are they? They're not. They're not going to say, "Oh, this is just a fundraising thing," or "This is just a way to get money in the pockets of certain individuals." They're not ready to say that. How are they so charged up about fraud, 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 and you know, fixed, fixed, fixed? I think it's it boils down to you kind of believe what you want to believe. Um, I'm not a psychologist, but I think. If, I think there's a lot to be said about people's tendency to dismiss information that is contrary to their pre-existing beliefs and buy into information that confirms what they want to believe. And I think, I think that's what this boils down to. I mean, at the same time, this is incredibly dangerous and harmful um, to, to cast doubt on the legitimacy of the electoral process, um, particularly when you consider the stakes. It's a, it's a very dangerous precedent to set. If these challenges are still going on when the Electoral College meets, Dr. Kino, what then? That's a really interesting question. Um, that's sort of like time's up. When the Electoral College meets, um, that's when there, there has to be a decision that's rendered. And it boils down to every single state. And uh, last week when I was on your program, I alluded to Pennsylvania and Pennsylvania's government has already indicated that they are going to they're not going to decide the election. They're going to award their votes based on the vote, which is what you normally expect. But I think Trump had maybe overestimated the loyalty of politicians at the state level um, and maybe expected these state governments to just throw the election and just come out and say, we're going we're gonna to contest the, the results of the election. But that really hasn't happened. I mean, you have to think a lot of these states are actually run by Republicans. It's Trump's own party, Trump's supporters. And I, it's just a fundamental ignorance about how elections work in the United States, which, like Canada, is a federalist system. You have decentralized power. Um, I think a lot of Trump supporters simply don't understand what that means and how that looks when it comes down to administering elections. Boy, back to the reading, the writing, and the arithmetic. I think we, we need a refresher course then. Dr. Alex Kena joining us, assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Virginia Commonwealth University. So 
would we be as observers watching to see just how far Donald Trump's own party will go for him? Or, you know, is that something that can even be usurped by the courts where it's, hey, even if the Republicans who are in control of a a certain state are willing to, you know, maybe push toward Donald Trump, the courts can eventually say, yeah, but no, but, but no. Who do we look to for the decision on this? That is a really good question, and I think if it was just one state, if this all came down to one state determining the election, then I would be very interested in looking at the courts. But that's not really what's happened. I mean, it's, it's many states. But I think what I'm really interested in is looking at the bureaucracy, because if you think about handing over power from one president to the next, here in the U.S., it doesn't really work like it does in, say, the United Kingdom, where there's an election and there's a new prime minister, and, like, that day the new prime minister comes and kicks the old guy out of office and moves in. (laughs) It takes several months here, and the process is largely bureaucratic. So there's uh, an agency here in the United States called the General Services Administration, and it comes down to a single bureaucrat who basically hands the keys over to the incoming presidency, um, to help the new presidency get up and running before the, the inauguration in January. And that particular person is sort of waiting on the sidelines to see how this is gonna how this is gonna play out. So it that's that to me is what's really interesting. Well, Dr. Kina, we really appreciate your insight. Again, as as difficult a situation as this is to watch, as unnerving as it can be for maybe both sides, I hope we get a chance to talk about it again because uh, it at least is providing us with some entertainment value. I'll be very realistic <laughs> entertainment value during a pandemic in which we're largely supposed to sit still. Hey, I'm with you on that, and it's my pleasure. So I always enjoy co- coming on and talking to your listeners. Let's do it again. Thanks, Dr. Kina. Take care. That's Dr. Alex Kina, assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. So, as he says, take a look at how the process works and how many times have we heard that. This is one of those things, and I made the argument yesterday, and this is the one that I really will stick to. If there was untoward stuff that had any value and merit to it, No one would do anything as untoward, or no one possibly could, not would, could do anything to total the number of votes that Joe Biden won by in Michigan. Over 140,000. You're going to stop long before you get to 80,000. You're going to stop long before you get to 20,000. Do you know how difficult it is to engineer thousands tens of thousands of votes are you kidding me no this would come down to a 500 vote difference because that's how you engineer something we're talking about in you know in all respect millions of votes no one is going to push beyond that so you know and you look at some of what was one of the first challenges that was turned down i love the decision on it let me find this this is from a michigan court that quickly heard something from the Trump campaign and issued a very fast decision. Here it is. It says, This supplemental evidence is inadmissible as hearsay. 
The assertion that, and they give the person that was accused, was informed by an unknown individual what, quote, other hired poll workers at her table had been told is inadmissible hearsay within hearsay. And plaintiffs have provided no hearsay exception for either level of hearsay that would warrant consideration of the evidence. And they they turfed it aside because it was nothing. It didn't have any merit to it. And so far, that's the kind of stuff that's been submitted from what is being reported. You, you have the right to demonstrate. You have the right to protest in this country. It is something that makes our country great. It is something that we need to maintain, at least in my opinion. And it doesn't matter whether you agree with someone or disagree with them. It is one of those things where you, you can't pick and choose. You can't just say, well, you know, I, I want to believe this. So, you know, this, the, you can't see things from one perspective. And the amount of stuff that gets sent to me right now from one perspective, just you're not giving both sides. You're only giving one perspective. Yeah, but you're only giving one perspective, and I think we've really got to find a way to set up a big, long table and all sit down and figure out how to, once again, see each other's side, because we're not doing a good job of that. And there are times when I fall into that category. I know that. But we're not doing a good job of seeing each other's side right now, because maintaining what we're allowed to do in having things like freedom of speech, that is key. That is a key thing. And the story that we're going to continue to follow right now on London Live is a perfect example. Picture this. Let's say that you wanted to take part in what would be called a rally or a protest or a demonstration or an observation, whatever it happens to be. Picture that you were going to do that. And then picture that you did go and do that. And whether you lent your voice or you just lent your support, whatever it was, you were there because you felt that was important. And what if you hurt no one in doing it, but all of a sudden you were arrested? Your house was basically invaded. Your sister was raped. What if you got away from that, even though you were charged and for a while imprisoned. You were charged with something like atrocities to the fatherland or hostilities toward the fatherland. What if that was a thing? And what if that thing could lead to you being beaten, tortured, punished, even killed? That's not where we want to wind up. And yet, that is the story we've been telling with the help of Megan Walker about a man named Kenneth from Cameroon. And it appeared to have a happily ever after ending weeks ago, where he was on a plane that could be headed back to Cameroon. He and others were taken off that plane, and it was thought, okay, maybe he gets into Canada. And if he gets into Canada, if he faces the death penalty in his home country, there's no way we can send him back. But he hasn't made it to Canada yet. So what's the latest on this story? And is the life of Kenneth still very much in danger? Megan Walker joins us now on London Live. Megan, I guess let's let's start there. Is Kenneth's life still in danger? So it's an absolutely horrific tale of a roller coaster ride that won't end, and his life is very much in danger. 
And it's incredible to me that an airplane, which is known as the death plane, because everybody uh, who gets on that plane to go to Cameroon is killed when they get off, tortured, killed, they go missing. There was a plane, I think you remember, that you were just speaking about that, and uh, Kenneth was supposed to be on, and he was pulled off. And of those individuals who were flown out and made their way to Cameroon, none have been heard of since or heard from since. So there's a plane that was scheduled originally to go today. It's been postponed until tomorrow. Um, and Kenneth is uh, one of those who is scheduled to be on that plane. And uh, you know what I find so frustrating about this is, first of all, uh, you know, you can imagine the incredible amount of strength and courage it takes to leave Cameroon and make your way to the United States of the America. It's a long journey. It's supposed to be the land of the free. And you walk in and you're immediately arrested once you identify that you're there seeking asylum. And you're put in the cage, and you're in a cage with people for a long period of time without enough room to sleep, standing room or sitting room only, um, no access to water. And then you're, de then you're tra left and you're, you, you go to another place in the U.S. Usually they, um, from Cameroon, take them to Texas. And you're there, and while you're there, you're facing the same atrocities you experienced in Cameroon, where you're tortured and women are forced to be sterilized, and you have your limbs broken as a way to get you to sign your own deportation papers. This is happening in the land of the free, the United States of America. And then you're threatened to go on these airplanes, the death planes, where you will be killed when you land in uh, Cameroon. And you have senators who are very supportive in the United States and who are actively trying to get these flights uh, canceled and halted with the support of Amnesty and other internationally recognized organizations. And then at home in Canada, when you call your MP or you try to get some engagement because of this outrageous human rights violation that's going on against so many individuals, and your MP says to you, listen, Megan, there's nothing we can do in Canada because we have to respect the sovereign rights of the United States. And I, and, all, and I can't breathe when I hear that as a proud Canadian citizen because I expect my government to be in line to help when there's an atrocity of this magnitude. And, and so we're in a situation where, you know, if an MP or a member of a minister had knowledge that an airplane was going to be attacked in the air by a missile, that MP or minister would have a responsibility to call the United States or any government and say, there's a threat to that plane in the air, and if we don't take care of it, you're going to see the death of 90 people. And yet, when we know, and the MPs know, that these 90 Cameroonians will get off an airplane and either be tortured to death, killed, or disappear, and yet they're not willing to take any action to save their lives. It's just unbelievable to me. I mean, in Cameroon, we've seen two mothers with little babies on their back shot to death. We've recently seen school ch children in their classroom killed by the government. And we're not getting our own government to stand up and say, look, what can we do to help save the lives of these refugees?
it's just it, it that's why I, I lose my breath i as soon as i get the news that they're not going to do anything each time i'm like oh, no not in my country my country's supposed to be the one that stands up against human rights violations so tennis is scheduled to go on an airplane and uh tomorrow we'll know if he's on it or not um and in the meantime we continue to do what we can to raise awareness and attention um these are our fellow human beings and uh, i think everybody has the right to uh, a good solid life and i know these individuals will be welcome in this community and provided with that life Megan Walker joining us as we continue to follow the story of Kenneth, who is from Cameroon, who faces charges of hostilities toward the fatherland, which is a charge. Uh, it's a differing opinion, basically, between government and people. And in this case, it can result in execution. And that's what he very well faces if he is sent back to Cameroon. You mentioned, Megan, that there are senators who are working on this who are supportive of trying to either delay this or save the lives of these people who are in this position. Have you heard from any of them recently anything that may suggest, okay, they're in a position that something could get done, or is everything in the United States seemingly wrapped in whatever is going on with the election? Well, we, we do know that there are a number of senators and Congress uh, individuals who have taken this on who are actively working um, with, you know, lobbying or advocating with Homeland Security that these planes be grounded and um, that these individuals will be treated like human beings and offered, um, you know, the opportunity to meet with Canadian Border Services in, in Canada and things of that nature. Um, the, the difficulty, of course, is that um, we still have a president in the United States um, who has made it clear in the past that he intends to deport all Africans. Um, and so, you know, it's racist, basically. He's, he, he's saying all Africans will have to go home, and uh, whether, whatever happens to them at the end of the day is not my responsibility. Um, they'll have to deal with that on their own. And, you know, I, I'm an activist, and I protest, and I, I'm very opinionated, and I express those opinions, and I seek out um, to lobby or advocate um, with my government for change, and we often disagree. Um, but nobody has ever threatened to kill me for doing those things. And I certainly hope that if I ever lived in a country where we were not allowed to stand up and express our views without fear of, of death, that somebody in some other country would step forward and say, no way. The, the, what happens in your country impacts refugees and immigrants around the entire world. So the sovereign's um, excuse to me is nonsense. We need to take a strong stand as Canadians and say we will not tolerate um, you know, the, the eviction from the United States of good citizens who are trying to seek a better life for themselves so they don't face persecution in their country of origin. Is there a chance that the flight gets delayed again? If, if it was delayed from today till tomorrow, is there a chance that happens again? Or is that just a, you know, is that kind of a last hope? I think it's really a last hope. I think what's happened is that, um, I mean, we 
have heard various different responses about the flight um, being delayed. One was that they're waiting for more individuals to, to load onto it, which is appalling. Um, and the other was just that they weren't organized enough to, you know, set, a, set out uh, en route. So uh, we have no idea why that flight was delayed. But as of right now, we know that that flight is um, booked to leave tomorrow from uh, Dallas, Texas, uh, to Cameroon, and it will leave uh, approximately 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and there's a number of stops along the way for refueling and the, those things. But, I, I, you know, I often in, um, become really emotionally involved in women that um, we take care of at lock or individuals in the community because they're not just a name or not just a statistic. We know them as human beings, and... Um, that's how I feel about this case, and I just feel like Kenneth, to me, represents all of those individuals from Cameroon who have not had the opportunity to speak out or have somebody advocate for them, and uh, my heart literally um, is, it aches knowing that as a country we would allow this to happen. Especially when there seemed to be, Megan, some optimism. There was optimism, but you know what happened was um, we were able to schedule an appointment with Kenneth at Canadian Border Services in, um, you know, Niagara Falls. Um, the difficulty was that the Canadian government didn't pursue it further to make arrangements for ICE to release Kenneth to attend that meeting. Even though we had all the money lined up for him to be transported and to have a guard transported with him, um, we had it lined up for him to be picked up um, on the other side once he got to Canada. We had generosity of this community to give him hotel or not hotels, um, apartments and groceries and families willing to sponsor him and take him in. Um, we had a quarantine, you know, process set up and uh, still at the end of the day, I said, no, nope, we, we are not releasing him. And so he, he didn't get to go to his meeting. And we've asked again today, please. Border services send another invitation so that he can attend um, another meeting in the future. And uh, we've just been advised by our MP that um, he can just show up at the border if ICE releases him. He doesn't need an appointment, which completely misses the whole mark of the thing, right? The only reason he got off the plane last time was because he had an invitation to attend the meeting at border services. And for me, it's not just him. He's the face of this problem. But, you know, when we're going to send 90 people to their death, surely we should be saying, listen, Canada will take 90 people. You know, Canada will take the 200 Cameroonians currently in custody. We will, you know, make sure that they have a place in some corner of our country. It's 200 people in a country. I mean, it's just so ridiculous that that isn't even being considered as an offer. So... You know, I don't want to get involved in the politics of sovereign nations. I, what I want to do is save lives. And I think that choice, you know, if you have to choose between one or the other, the choice to save a life is probably far more important. Megan, thank you so much for, again, bringing this story to everyone's attention, for all of the calls and emails and the time that you have spent in trying to get people to listen to this story. And you just outlined it right there, what it comes down to. You know, why why would we not save the life of someone on this planet? There are so many ways to lose a life on this planet. It's too easy to lose a life on this planet. Why would we not allow somebody 
the opportunity to keep their life going if it's as easy as saying yeah we'll uh, we'll just we don't want them in our country but if if you want these people right here who who are applying for some sort of status if if you want them to come to your country it seems easy why i i can't understand and i know you can't either what gets bogged down in bureaucratic red tape i don't i don't understand I, you know i don't either and how you could ever ever deny somebody the opportunity to contribute to your country when they face death at home is just absolutely overwhelming to me. I can't fathom it. But, you know, Mike, I really appreciate you continuing to raise attention around this issue and also your listeners who continue to reach out to us and say, how can we help? So you're making a bit, you've got a big voice, as you know, and you're making a big difference. And Hopefully, politicians are listening to you right now, and it'll be enough to sway them to do something. So thank you. Megan, hopefully we're talking tomorrow with some different news. I'm going to still hold out hope. I know you will, too. Yeah, you take good care, and thanks again. Okay, Okay, we'll talk soon. That's Megan Walker. And again, look at how easy it is to lose your life on this planet. It's too easy. We're in the middle of a pandemic that is claiming thousands of lives. We have other diseases and disorders that claim lives. We have traffic fatalities. We have drug overdoses. We have all kinds of things that claim lives. And none of those people asked for any of it. And here's an opportunity where you've got the death plane that is going to take off and deliver people And you can look into the story. Kenneth did not murder somebody. He's not being extradited to go and face a criminal prosecution. He attended a peaceful rally that the government wasn't happy about. That's hostilities toward the fatherland. We're going to snub that stuff out. And so that's what he's going back to face. And yet we're going to say, yeah, yeah, no problem. No problem. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. No, it doesn't make perfect sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. I don't know where this story goes, but right now it's not headed in a very good direction at all. But we'll continue to follow it. And thank you if you have done something. And as Megan says, many people in London have. Thank you if you've done that. And it right now is an attempt. And we'll see what happens tomorrow. Tomorrow is Remembrance Day, and it is an incredibly important day, especially when we look around and appreciate what we have. Pandemic and all, appreciate what we have. However, tomorrow is going to be a different day in terms of observance of Remembrance Day. If normally you go to the Cenotaph, If normally you may go and and visit a loved one's grave, perhaps it's not something that you are doing this time around. Let's talk about how things are working in London. Randy Warden joins us right now, Zone Commander with the Royal Canadian Legion and Chairperson of the London Remembrance Day Committee. Randy, thanks so much for taking some time for us. How is today going with final preparations? Well, today's been a wonderful day, uh, Mike, and thank you for asking. Uh, with the uh, restrictions on tomorrow, uh, we have a couple of veterans that have been at the Cenotaph uh, all day today 
receiving wreaths that normally would have been laid during the service. And there's probably 24 wreaths at the cenotaph. So the, the, the response has been absolutely wonderful. And where would the wreaths be coming from, Randy? They come from uh, businesses. They come from uh, veteran associations, service clubs, and in some cases, families that just wish to remember someone that was lost in, uh, in, in time of war. Normally, if we are not in a pandemic, we can picture what the ceremony is going to be like at the Cenotaph in London or at a Cenotaph in other towns and cities. Tomorrow, what will this be like and, and what are you asking all of us to do? Well, first of all, uh, in response to the, the ceremony itself, uh, because of restrictions, uh, it's by invitation only. Uh, last year, the City of London had 550 uh, veterans and soldiers on parade and thousands in the audience. And this year, we have 25 people by invitation. So it, the most significant change is right there. There is no parade. There's no vigil for the cadets tonight. Um, there will be strictly the service. Uh, the service will be pretty much the way we have known it for years, but people will have to watch it uh, either streamed on the Internet or a number of radio stations, including yours, uh, or on local television stations. So, so you have to watch it from home. We are asking all Londoners to stand on the steps of their, of, of the, at the front door of their residence or business at 11 o'clock to observe a moment of silence, if you can go outside and just stand for two minutes and, and just reflect on what has been given by so many before us. And there's a special treat if you do that. If you stand outside and you look up into the skies, at about 10 minutes to 11, a C-130 Hercules aircraft will enter London airspace down around Regina Monday Collegiate, and he's going to fly straight up Wellington over Parkwood Hospital and will be directly over the cenotaph at 11 o'clock for a flyby. And then he will be off to uh, over Woolsey Barracks, then off to another high school in East London, Remembrance uh, Gardens, and then turn it north and will fly along the Vector Memorial Parkway and ending his trip over the London Airport, which used to be known in time of war as the Crumlin Air Force Base, uh, which is where 427 Wing is still to this day. What's really interesting and kind of kind of cool about this this particular flight is he will be as low as he legally is allowed to go to the ground he's going to be 500 feet above the tallest building and he will be going at a speed of 130 knots and if you're wondering how fast is 130 knots that's the slowest that aircraft can go and he's going to let the ramp down and that's the speed that that aircraft would go when paratroopers go out during time of war. So that's about the height and about the speed. And if you can imagine paratroopers coming out the back. And the other thing that's happening, for those that will be visiting their loved ones at local cemeteries, at the four largest veteran cemeteries in London, at 11 o'clock we will have a lone piper to play uh, Amazing Grace, observe a moment of silence, and then play the lament as well. So we're trying to make sure that there are things happening around the city that you can observe from close to home and uh, and, and still recognize uh, the importance of this day. Randy, the description already gives you chills. So thank you for what you have put together 
in that way. We're talking with Randy Warden, zone commander with the Royal Canadian Legion for all of the city of London and Dorchester, chairperson for the London Remembrance Day Committee. Randy, this has been a different year in that normally we can walk by poppy boxes and we can make a donation very easily at one of those poppy boxes and, and we can help out our veterans. This year we're just not out and about as much. Do we know how donations have been going in London or, or how we can help even if we're not walking by a poppy box? Well, it's a little early to tell because we don't tally the success of the campaign until after Remembrance Day. But it, it, it's a little bit different this year because many of the buildings that would have a poppy are just not open to the public. Uh, many businesses are working on reduced hours or their staff are working from home. So there, there are a number of factors that will most certainly play into how the campaign is going. But if you wish to make a donation to the Poppy Fund, and I, and I want you to remember that every donation for the Poppy Fund goes back into veteran programming. So the money that's raised locally here will benefit veterans in our area. But you can do so online by going to uh, www.legion.ca. Um, or you can stop by after Remembrance Day at your local branch of the Legion and make a donation. Uh, even if it's after the fact, it will still go to the same good cause. Well, Randy, it isn't like any other year, but at the same time, it, it isn't like any other year. It's one of those years where we are going to be able to take it among ourselves and, and put it on ourselves to remember and to pay tribute to those who have done so much to give us what we have. And I really hope that that's something that we all take very seriously tomorrow. Thank you so much for your service, and certainly thank you for outlining how all of this is going to work tomorrow and thanks for arranging the hercules i mean anybody who the the name hercules doesn't quite do it justice does it well for those of us that have served or have jumped out of the back of one it's a truly exciting name for an aircraft <laughs> one of the best have you ever jumped out of the back of one yes sir you're I, kidding I, I, wait a minute earned, randy we, my... we were gonna we were gonna finish the interview and now we now we've got to hear that story <laughs> I, my father was a paratrooper and had many jumps to his name when he served. So, of course, when I joined the Army, it was inherent upon me to do the parachute training. And I did go to Edmonton, and I completed the uh, the training and was awarded my wings for have completed the right number of jumps. Uh, but when it came afterwards, I went back to my regiment and not to the Airborne Regiment. Wow. Now, in jumping out of a Hercules, is that something where you almost need a running start inside the plane, or can you just kind of jump off the side as the gate opens? No, it's pretty mechanical. You're standing there in a line of troops, and you're you're tethered up, and a green light goes on, and they're bellowing at you to keep that line moving, and you find yourself all of a sudden out of the inside of a very noisy, crowded Herc into the very serene and peaceful, great outdoors. It's, uh, it, it's truly uh, uh, an experience. And, uh, and you get the opportunity to go out either the side door and uh, we also do ramp jumps. I should share with you that when the Hercules is flying over the city, the ramp will be lowered so you can visualize those paratroopers coming out incredible and like you say you go from the noise of being inside this massive aircraft flying through the air to how quickly does that sound fade away when you jump out it's instant it's 
the first time you experience it, uh, it, it stays with you the rest of your life. It's, uh, it, it's serene. It's peaceful. There is, there is no noise at that altitude. Uh, and the closer you get to the ground, you start to hear the, the noise from the ground. You don't hear traffic. You don't hear anything. A gentle Randy, break. once again, thank you for the time today. Thank you for your service. Tomorrow is Remembrance Day, and we are going to have a ceremony that you can just look up and appreciate, or certainly you can pay attention to by way of radio or TV. We'll outline that in just a moment. Randy, all the best. Please keep safe. Thank you so much, Mike. That's Randy Warden, Zone Commander, Royal Canadian Legion, for all city of London and Dorchester and chairperson with the London Remembrance Day Committee and someone who has jumped, parachuted out of a Hercules aircraft. You can't say you know too many of those people, right? Well, Randy is one of a very select few, but thanks to him and everyone else for making sure that Remembrance Day and the observances and the ceremony, that it happens tomorrow. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.